Good morning. Um, it's very nice to see all of you this morning at the University Museum. I'm really happy that so many showed up at this uh, uh, this early. Uh, my name is Tor Olav Iversen. Uh, I'm a member of the Forum for Science and Democracy and also a PhD student at the Center for Studies of Sciences and Humanities. Um, and this meeting, it's part of a meeting series uh, that's arranged by uh, Forum for Science and Democracy, which is a group that uh, arranges debate on uh, university and research uh, policy uh, by UIB SDG and by Bergen Global, which is co-owned by UIB and uh, Christian Mikkelsen Institute. Um, so now I would like to present our distinguished guest for today, um, Professor Silvio Funtovic. Um, he has since February 2012 been a professor too at the Center for Study of Sciences and Humanities here at the University of Bergen. So he's a, he's a local. Um, and uh, Silvio, he has uh, very incredibly broad experience. He has taught in mathematics, logic and research methodology in Buenos Aires in Argentina. During the 80s he was a research fellow at the University of Leeds. And until his retirement in 2011, um, he was a scientific officer at the Institute for the uh, protec uh, Protection and Security of the Citizen, which lies under the European Commission. Um, he's also the author of uh, numerous uh, books and papers uh, in the fields of uh, environmental and technological risks um, and policy-related re research. And, uh, uh, also, for me, I like academically. I first and foremost, I know him as the creator of, of the term and research field of post-normal science, which I think you will also touch upon today. Good morning, and thank you for coming so early. I, it was fresh from my keynote at the at the SDG conference. In it was at the beginning of this year, so I say well that they wanted me to talk about something similar, okay? I, uh, well, then uh, I realized that the venue was this, uh, a nice convivial venue, rather than the formal uh, hall up here, and that I had a bit more time. So I decided to uh, change it a bit. I mean, substantially is the same thing but change it a bit to uh, reflect, I mean, the occasion, so I call it a, a conversation. Eh? So we have a conversation. Now, let me see, uh, let me go to the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, conversations have a, a very interesting history in science. You know, here you have the periodic conversations at the Royal Society of uh, London. Of course, the, being a kind of snobbish institutions, they call it conversazioni in Italian, you know? And it shows a bit of culture. Uh, and they were rather scandalous also because uh, uh, women were allowed to participate, as you can see. Uh, uh, now, uh, so we'll have a conversation, I will talk for a while, and then I hope you, you'll participate and ask questions and give your opinions, okay? Uh, uh, now, uh, the subject of uh, 
science, democracy, and now added sustainability, uh, has been the, the core of our work for more than 30 years. Okay, so uh, these three themes, science, democracy, sustainability, which no, are not isolated, but you, you have to think them all uh, together. So uh, when I say our work, uh, it's mainly their colleagues. You can, I can see a lot of my colleagues from SPT who have also participated in this endeavor, but mainly my work with Jerry Roberts. Uh, uh, which we started in 40 years ago, 1979. Uh, Jerry is now 90 and still going very strong. Uh, so we still keep doing things like that. But as I said, uh, from the beginning, it was the core of our work. And uh, here uh, you can see uh, the epilogue from our 1990 bo book on uncertainty and quality in science for policy, which in a sense collects and reports work we did during the 80s, in which the words science and democracy are there. And we argue that the democratization of science is part of the struggles of for the extension of rights, okay? It's part of the struggle of society and human uh, for the extension of rights. So as you can see, this already 30 years ago, but it reflects work done in the last 40 years. And then uh, just to add to that, in uh, it, this is from Almost 10 years later, uh, uh, we uh, had an editorial for a, a special issue on post-normal science where we argue that at the beginning, we conceived our work talking about the pathologies of our industrial technology, technological system, and we say that we need to develop new sciences, and we call them the sciences of cleanup and survival. Some of these words will resonate today with the discussions we are having in relation to climate, etc. So already uh, almost 40 years, we have been talking about the need to develop a new system, science, sciences of what we called cleanup and survival. And we argue that this type of sciences, this science, was qualitatively different from the traditional disciplinary science. And uh, so uh, today is 1st of November, and it was supposed to be the first Brexit day, right? Uh, so after the 31st of October, right? Um, so I was going to become 
a non-European because I'm a British citizen. Now, the irony is, being a 1st of November, that in, uh, in I think it's, it says there the date, we are talking about uh, uh, early uh, 1998, 97, uh, we, the British presidency of the European Union, and here is the, is the irony, asked me to prepare a, a workshop, a symposium at the United Nations for the Commission of Sustainable Development. Uh, this is part of the documentation that pre-produced and about the, uh, the, what are the challenges in the use of uh, science for sustainability. And uh, some of the challenges are expressed here. And you can see where uh, we argue that you, there is no off-the-shelf science for sustainability. Uh, and that, that has to do with the special features of what we can call science for sustainability. And the idea that uh, uh, we need a, a different type of science where not only technical problems are solved, but also fundamental political and moral issues. And from the beginning, we argued that uh, it is very important to try to answer two questions. The first is, what do we want to sustain? And and for whom? Okay. So, and those were the two questions I raised in February during my, or February, March, I can't remember, during my keynote at the SDG conference. What do we want to sustain and for whom? And these are not technical questions. They might have some technical aspects, but that will deal with them at the appropriate time. But in the meantime, it is clear that we don't want to sustain everything, okay? Not only we don't want to sustain some, we, call, we can call them unsustainable practices, but also perhaps it's not possible to sustain everything in a time of change because we are trying to sustain in a time of change and we can call that the tragedy of change there's no way to stop change so how do we decide and do sustain those things that we want to sustain and then the question is for whom For whom? Now, that was the, uh, the core of our paper for the United Nations Conference. And then we continue with uh, 
a paper that was published in the UNESCO for the UNESCO where we talk about develop a bit more what could be a new social contract for science in for sustainability and some of the properties and the characteristics of uh, of any science for sustainability were made explicit the idea that it, we require change in, in methods in criteria of truth and quality conceptual frameworks the ideas of nonlinearity plurality of perspectives emergence of properties self-organization multiplicity of scales and irreducible uncertainty you can immediately see that this is not your traditional disciplinary science. Okay. <laughs> These challenges uh, were then synthesized in what it is the, uh, the important paper on the emergence of sustainability science. And this is uh, appeared in Science Magazine 2001, uh, uh, and as I said, has all the paper sources, so he can later say how you can get them all <coughs> if you want. But uh, some of those, uh, some of the properties we mentioned before, are collected into this new, uh, uh, this new call for the creation of a new type of science we call sustainability science okay. and the discussion as you uh, as you can see and, and read later is that it, precisely the point I was trying to make before that is not your traditional disciplinary science the relation between facts and values the relation between science ethics and politics okay and the uh, um, idea about social technical ecological systems complex systems now as you see it has almost uh, 20 years this idea and uh, <laughs> but we still are talking about the creation of a sustainability science. Because although the awareness is there that we need a different type of science in order uh, to meet the challenges of sustainability, the tendency is to go back to disciplinary science. So the tendency is to deal with this as another scientific discipline. So we concentrate on indicators eh? and meeting targets of indicators and quantifications and predictions. And uh, I'm not saying that this is not necessary, but we have to be very careful not to betray the whole purpose by concentrating in something 
like the quantification and indicators and targets when the underlying system is complex to a point where uh, those things are, we can say, we can argue about their feasibility. So uh, every now and then we get again the calls to go back to the roots and realize. But as I say, 30 years have passed. And uh, in a sense, things have not gone better. Now, in, in this paper and in other papers, uh, we refer to a, to a special occasion that happened in, in 1992, and that was the, uh, the Rio conference. Well, most of you will remember the Rio conference on the environment. You know, most of you are young, but perhaps you have read. In, in this paper, they talk about Rio plus 10 already. So it was 2002. So they are preparing for 2002, which is Rio plus 10. Just where we're trying to see what were the lessons learned from Rio and what were, if progress have been made. Clearly here, the argument is that not a lot of progress has been made. 10 years after. Now, uh, I was in, in Rio in, in 1992, I had, and uh, uh, participated not only in the formal activities like university meetings, and, but also at the forum, you know, as part of an <coughs> NGO at that time, which was the e ecological economics. That was one of the first, the, 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 the beginning of what we used to call ecological economics at that time. And, and I, I like to use this slide that comes from Rio and uh, to try to frame what is the problem, okay? Now, uh, many of you perhaps recognize this text. Some of you might even have taught it, you know. This is a text where we can have a one-year course or a full life course. Only this short text. Because it encapsulates a culture, an ideology, ideas about what to do and when we can do it or not, and all the rest. Now, and it is known as the precautionary principle. Now, I'm not going to go into details about those things. I don't have the time, and it's not the purpose of this conversation. But you see, in the text, it says approach. And so it will be an, a precautionary approach and not a precautionary principle. There's a big distinction between principles and approaches. But it is called principle, a precautionary principle because it's called principle 15 of a chapter 
at the Rio conference that was called Agenda 21. Some of you remember Agenda 21, but that was mainly about local, sustainabi uh, local sustainability, okay? So, and uh, why uh, there was uh, an awareness about we needed something like this? And that had to do with something I mentioned before, this awareness about the complexity and about the irreducible uncertainty. But, so, the question which was asked, and here I want you to pay attention, is are we allowed to act legitimately when we have scientific uncertainty? Think about that question as such. So, this a text, this draft, short draft, addresses that question. It is about the relation between scientific knowledge and political action. Okay? Now, the first thing you can observe, and we can leave it that for later, I'm not going to answer a couple of questions, is that in spite of that, the word uncertainty is not in the text. So instead of having just scientific uncertainty, you have lack of full scientific certainty, which is in red. And the immediate questions I want you to reflect on is, is, well, the first is the immediate one. Why uncertainty is not mentioned? You, for those who participate in drafting of these things, have part, you know, this is an art, the draft. It has to be a bit precise, but ambiguous and vague enough for people to come together and agree on the text. And usually the rule is that you don't put more words than necessary because that creates everybody coming to the table, and I remember that many times, comes with an idea about how to modify the text. Oh, we need a semicolon instead of a, of a stop. Uh, we need a, a, a comma instead of a point and so on and so forth that will be enabled, will be enabled to sell it to our own constituencies in terms of agreements. Now, so here, when we put lack of full scientific certainty, clearly that is odd. You know, that's not the rule. So the question is first, why uncertainty is not mentioned? And the second is, is the lack of full scientific certainty the same as scientific uncertainty? Okay, for you to think. And that relates then to the question about legitimacy. Okay? Legitimacy of action, political action, in the face of lack of full scientific certainty. 
Now, suppose you're coming from a different culture, not even a terrestrial culture today, because I suppose that with uh, you know, globalization, very difficult to escape to a certain mind. I come from another planet, I mean, uh, right? I, I say, I don't understand the text. What is the logical relation, necessity of, on one hand, science, and on the other, political action? Is that a logical necessity or a contingency? This is a fundamental question. Why do we need certainty in order to act in a legitimate fashion? And why do we need an exception in order to fix an anomaly? clear. The next part is also very interesting because the whole par paragraph then becomes almost impossible to apply. Because then it says that the measures, the precautionary approach, should be cost-effective, meaning has to have it be proportional to the damage that we are estimating that we are going to make or is being made. So once we get a step out of the quantification and facts mode, we immediately retreat and say, oh, of course, we have to estimate that. So this text becomes a kind of politically correct cost-benefit analysis. And this is why it generates so many problems, because in order to trigger the exemption, so in order to act in a legitimate fashion, then you have to estimate that the precaution you're adopting will not be more costly than the damage you want to prevent. And that implies that those calculations can be done. Is that clear? It's not so simple, but it is important to realize. Okay. Now, I'm a... Uh, I could give some other examples showing what is the framework, the normative, institutional, ideological framework in which the relation with science and politics is, you know, is enacted. But I think this is enough for the time being. I have other things to say. Okay, this is from my colleague sitting there, Jeroen uh, uh, van der Sluis, and, uh, uh, and it is based on, uh, it is based on Jerry's uh, uh, book of 1971. If you are interested in reading 
Jerry's book, which is a big book, uh, we can do, we have a, a way in, a, I can give you a link where the book is open for everybody, okay? Without going to the Kazakhstan or whatever, you know, <laughs> science hub. Yeah, but, yeah. So, uh, this is a nice diagram that encapsulates the problems I mentioned before. The idea that if you have a practical political problem, you, you, what you have to do is translate it into a techno-scientific problem. You solve the techno-scientific problem, then your practical political problem is solved. That is in synthesis our idea, the modernity's idea of legitimacy and coevolution between science <laughs> and society. You see? That relay, and that you can see, you see, the idea is somehow the received view is that from modernity on, science and uh, democracy uh, worked harmoniously somehow with the division of labor. Yeah, division of labor. Science takes care of facts, whereas democracy, whatever, I'm using as a sh shorthand democracy, science, you know, it needs a lot of <laughs> articulation. But for this occasion, I think you'll understand what I say. And democracy takes care of the value thing. And then there are institutions here and the institutions here. And somehow, in a miraculous way, magic way, these things more or less work well. And in a sense, this idea, this very strong idea, was very successful. So when we are talking about crisis, in my view, in my personal view, the crisis, if we have, or the crisis in plural, are not the result of failure, but in a sense they're the crisis of success. This idea created the possibility of an incredible development of both science, technology, and also society, democracy, human rights, and all the rest. And it is precisely I always argue that when you think that things are really going well is when things can explode. Because taking to the limit, this translation from political practical problems into technical problems is an encroaching of techno-science into what it is the democratic space. 
taking to the limit, uh, we have this. This guy, San uh, Palmisano, is the was the chair president of IBM, and and you know, smart starts as uh, advertising for IBM. All this idea, smart became of common use because of IBM, and this idea that he's proposing what are the socio-technical, science-technical developments, data science, artificial intelligence, robotics, and all the rest. And this is, this is smart. And as I say, and it's smart, and it is so realistic because it's so refreshingly non-ideological. I don't know if you understand what it means. It means that most of the important problems, most of the important issues that we face are taken from the political agenda. Now, uh, and Therefore, what we have seen is just the logical development of a situation where, at the beginning, uh, you have, there were some anomalies to fix in the relation between science and democracy, but in general, they work harmoniously. With the time and with the development and enhancement of, as I say, democracy, we are very different. We, we went a long way. We talked today about pluralism and diversity and inclusion and all those things, different lifestyles, and, and, and good for that. And at the beginning, we talked precisely about this struggle for enhancing rights. At the same time, science and technology develop tools and an ideology that it enters into in conflict with that idea. So it's not by chance that in the last few years we have, to, we have seen like a conflict between science and politics. There are even some coins, some words like post-truth, fake news, uh, uh, populist, anti-science, things like that, are result precisely of the dialectics between uh, these two developments. And so we have to be quite careful about how we deal with that. You know, sometimes we took the, an uh, and I understand that they are short hands when you say post-truth. Well, because if now we are in the post-truth, well, I missed the, the truth era. So we, we, we jumped from pre-truth to post-truth. Okay, so 
let's think about that. I, I'm not saying we can use those shorthands, on, but on the other hand, it's good to be reflect about those things, you know. I feel a bit responsible also for this idea of alternative facts. We already mentioned alternative facts in the 1980s. I, and we argue that this is good. Okay? So we can talk about it later. Now, let me almost fi finish. I, I just can't uh, have a, a talk without mentioning two of the people I, I really admire. One is Jorge Luis Borges, which is not part of my lecture today. It could have been. And the other is Antonio Gramsci. Now, uh, uh, the idea that <coughs> history teaches, but it has no pupils. Now, this is really awful, this idea that we cannot learn. And, and, and Gramsci said that, interestingly enough, related to Italy and Spain in 1921, and we can repeat that a hundred years later. And not only, I would say, these are precursors. Now, not only applies to Italy and Spain, 1921, but it applies to the US, to the UK, to most of continental Europe, most of the world. And the idea is, but this is awful. I mean, at, at my age and state of my life, I want to believe that, uh, that this is not true. So, uh, and that really we, we can learn. And, and this is the challenge. When the students said, well, very skeptical and pessimistic, you know, about real or imaginary extinctions and things like that, I always say, well, I, I mean, uh, uh, that means that if there is a lot to do. There is a lot to do. How? That's another story. And I finished like I finished uh, in last time, uh, saying that uh, when I was young, politics was defined about what is to be done. Now, Politics has to be defined, and that's my perspective, in how, more than what. The how, the what becomes the how, meaning in order to face <coughs> the challenges, which are very serious challenges, we'll have to do things together with people we, who we don't like. I mean, that we feel even disgust for some people. But we have to realize that there is no way out of the crisis without finding a way to live 
together. Uh, now, the last thing is, uh, is an advertising, you know. We are going to have a conference of post-normal science, our fifth in Florence next year. And I'm very happy to say that a lot of my colleagues and friends from the University of Bergen are part of the organization. So if you are interested, Thuralev, part of it, and perhaps he can mention. So thank you.